0: Good afternoon
1: and welcome. It's Tuesday and that means it's time for our crack strategy panel. As always, there's a lot to talk about. Yesterday, Premier Doug Ford hosted the country's premiers here in Toronto. They all agreed they want more money from, for health care from Ottawa and a radical rethink to the fiscal stabilization program that helps provinces facing a short-term cash crunch. What's the upshot? Of that meeting, how does it play into the softening of Ford's image? The latest poll suggests that that process has not worked very well, at least not yet. And while we are on the subject of provincial matters, that one day teacher strike is still on for tomorrow, unless there's a deal by then. Here in the city, more pedestrians struck and an increasing number of hit and runs. A failure of decency is what some people call it. And will the new police enforcement team and the new speeding cameras promised by the mayor, will they solve that? Let's get to it. The numbers to call 416 toll free one 866 740 And now I'd like to welcome John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner. Fleischman Hillard High Road, Karen Stintz, former city councillor and current CEO of Variety Village, and Charles Bird, managing partner of Earnscliff Strategy Group here in Toronto. Welcome, everybody. Thank you. Hello there. Hello. Well, it is the beginning of the festive season, so <laughs> let's hope the conversation is a bit festive the upshot of yesterday's meeting, John?
2: Well, uh, festive for a lot of uh, uh, folks, but uh, not so much for the politicians, but certainly it seemed to be a festive mood with all the premiers yesterday, in, in a sense that um, they, uh, I thought they were quite strong in their unanimity on a number of fronts, uh, which is not usually seen when it comes to first ministers or, or premiers um, uh, in, in normal cases, but I thought that on pharmacare they were pretty strong with respect to you know making sure that the federal government was clear that they wanted to opt out. If there was any intention of, of the national uh, government going with pharmacare across the board, they wanted the provinces a chance to opt out for, for, for that. And I thought the stabilization or the equalization payment stuff was, was really strong, led by Alberta, uh, supported by Scott Moe and others. But it was a strong signal that, that you know, I think this Prime Minister is going to have a bit of a challenge uh, and over the next number of years, however long this, this minority government lasts for uh, with respect to inter, intergovernmental, interprovincial relations, because a lot of them are strong, and they have a sense of direction that I thought is going to cause some problems for the Prime Minister down the road.
1: you mentioned pharmacare I mean, my read on the Liberals on pharmacare is that they they were not going to move on this anytime soon anyway, they keep talking about it, but i I don't think they're moving on it.
3: no it's an expensive program, and i you know and I, I think it's um, also complicated by the fact that some people have coverage, some people mm-hmm. don't. Um, But it, I don't I don't actually think it's a pressing issue for many Canadians. Um but I I do think that on the uh the Premier's conference I think what will be interesting moving forward uh particularly in light of Andrew Shear's problems with his potential leadership issues sur- swirling about. Um although the the conservatives are the official opposition until they get themselves organized they can't be an effective opposition. But what's interesting now is with the premiers seemingly united on a number of fronts they become the de facto opposition for this minority government. And um, the prime minister will need to pay attention to the provinces and the, the premiers in a way that maybe others haven't had to, because they they they've been, they because of the regional dis, dis, um, disagreements that might take place. In this case, the, the regions have come together and have come up with a common front. Um, so it's a quite interesting dynamic in the federal relationship with the provinces. Charles, do you agree with that?
4: Now, ho ho, hold <laughs> the phone. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you wanted festive, Libby, so I had to. Cast okay, that
1: out. good, good.
4: Um, no, I don't disagree necessarily with either of my colleagues. I would say that Council of the Federation meetings, the so-called gathering of provincial and territorial premiers happen once a year and having been to a couple of them, I can tell you they are snoozy affairs. Um, There is a lot of talk, there is a lot of interesting discussion about important issues as there was yesterday, but if you're expecting the premiers to come together and um, actively coordinate amongst themselves what the national agenda is going to be, whether it's on farm Care whether it's on transfer payments—that's just unrealistic. It's just not the way our federation works. M- these these relationships tend to be bilateral between individual premiers and the prime minister. The other thing I would say about the premiers coming together and forming the so-called resistance—that—that that struck me as the the infamous McLean's cover, which oh. had um, Premier um, Ford and Premier Kenny, and I can't remember who else except. Scott Andrew Molle, Shear Andrew yeah. Shear was part of mm-hmm. the resistance and it, that so that's the most interesting dynamic of all which is whether Premier Ford or Premier Kenny might be interested in taking uh, Mr. Shear's job in the next uh, 6 months or so. Uh, uh,
1: Charles well while, while we have you there were you surprised by this poll like I would have thought that uh, the result of Doug Ford's charm offensive you know, would show up in polling, but the Leger poll, a new Leger poll, found that almost seventy percent of Ontarians have a negative opinion of him and twenty-six percent have a positive view. Though that that I mean he's got time, but were you surprised by that number?
4: Um I, I wanna say right off the top that Doug Ford risked civil war in our country yesterday by handing out leaf jerseys to each of the uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> <three>
1: <laughs> Yes, he um, did. You know, he I did. don't
4: I don't buy that poll because um You know, Doug Ford really came out of nowhere in early 2018 as a result of what happened to his predecessors. Travails, shall we say, uh, in his leadership of the Ontario PC Party, and Doug Ford was a relatively unknown commodity when he first became premier, despite having been through a, a very truncated leadership campaign and uh, the subsequent election campaign, and he, by most people's admission, had a very difficult first year. I don't think he necessarily had the staff around him that he needed, and there was a bit. Of you know shoot first, ask questions later, style to the way his government did business they've clearly made a turn I mean staying out of the 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 uh, crossfire of the federal election was may not have been all that great for the federal conservatives in retrospect, but probably served Doug Ford quite well and he's clearly turned a corner I mean there is a kindler gentler Doug Ford that is on evidence to everyone and so Talk to me about polls that'll be happening a year from now or as we get closer to the next Ontario election. I think those will have a lot more to say on the subject.
2: John, what do you think? Yeah, I think, you know, Leger is obviously a credible organization, but I don't I don't buy this poll. And I also, from the perspective of anecdotally, I'm I'm hearing from a lot of folks and not party members and party supporters, but when I go to various receptions and whatnot of of, of, of organizations that are not political, um, a lot of them are recognizing the fact that, that and they're saying quite quite publicly and quite openly that, that they're seeing a whole new Premier Ford, a whole new direction, a new tone. Uh, I think they're catching that, obviously, in, in the clips that they're seeing, obviously, from the media that's been playing that, you know, quite robustly over the last little while. Um, but I do think it, it, it's like cr- turning a cruise ship um, and, and it reflect when you get reflections from the population. And that is it takes a while for a cruise ship to turn. Uh, and I think it takes a while for for this to sink into the to the voters, you know, psyche. Um, but I, I, I'm sensing it from a lot of folks that that they're seeing a big change and for the positive. Uh, so I do think it's going to change and, and for the better for the premier. And I also think more importantly, what you're seeing is you're seeing party supporters who are much more um, buoyed by this and the morale is high. You're seeing caucus members and cabinet ministers who are much more allowed to say their things and get out there and be more public. So you're seeing a bit more of a step in their, in their walk, you know, sort of in a, in, a, in a very positive way. I think all that's going to reflect uh, very positively to, to the government. And I think it's going to reflect down to the voters as well.
1: Okay, so uh, then let's talk about Andrew Shear And uh, Charles, you were just pointing out, so the guy uh, increased his caucus, he increased the number of seats, and uh, it really looks like he's toast, the knives are out. He came up with, I thought, a very good kind of a rebuttal, saying he doesn't care what the talking heads in Toronto say, but still.
4: it's It's quite something to watch. I mean, you compare his performance, you know, winning an additional 20 plus seats, largest opposition caucus in Canadian history, knocking Justin Trudeau from majority to minority status. You think he'd be poised much as Stephen Harper was post 2004, you know, ready to, to fight the next election, lead the party and, and win. Um, I, and I, the only question in my mind is whether he actually makes it to the convention at this point. I mean, he is in serious, serious trouble. Uh, and you compare that to Jugmeet Singh, who um, you know led a moribund NDP, which saw its seat count reduced to exactly one seat in Quebec from you know highs just eight years earlier in 2011 under Jack Layton, reduced from 43 seats to 24 seats, and he's a hero. And there's no no challenge whatsoever to his leadership. He's just fine. So it really is a game of expectations, as Karen was saying earlier. Um, but the other thing that really is amazing to me about what's happening to Andrew Sheer is you have uh, a number of individuals within the Conservative Party, fairly senior people who are coming out, just dead set against his continuing leadership, going as far as to say he needs to resign now because we do not have time to futz around. That's with, uh,
1: Corey Tonight, And
4: that's Corey Tonight, Melissa Lansman. And, and it's others. And these are Harper staffers who are also lobbyists, right? And, and you know, John and I have practiced in that particular uh, art. Um, and the notion that lobbyists should be dictating to political parties and to political leaders, you know, what the future of the party should be be that is anathema mm-hmm.
1: uh, yeah you know somebody pointed pointed out and I don't remember if this was true or not they said oh you know the first time Harper lost it was the same deal the knives were out is that is is that
2: True. Well, it, to some extent it is, and I can speak with some level of experience because I was actually a candidate in two thousand and four, uh, and I remember quite clearly that election campaign where you know, and if you if you before the Gomery Commission, obviously, which which caused a huge, uh, to use the frame, albatross around uh, the then then leader or Prime Minister Paul Martin, but um, you know, at the time, Paul Martin when he became leader of the party, the Liberal Party, he was you know ninety percent popularity and he was going to sweep the country, uh, winning two hundred seats, so there was never an expectation when Stephen Harper became the leader of the new Conservative Party at the time, the the, the Reform and and Conservative Parties merging. Um, But when he was able to reduce Paul Martin to a minority government, it was seen by and large as a victory. The expectation at the beginning was always low. So the the expectation that the fact that he was able to reduce him to a minority government was actually seen as a win. Um, But I remember at the doors, people weren't particularly fond of Stephen Harper in 2004. Um, But yet, you know, we had as, as, as mandatory a customary leadership review vote. Then uh, and Stephen Harper came out and said, "Look, if I get anything less than eighty percent, I'm going to walk." He ended up getting eighty four percent, stayed, and then became, of course, the Prime Minister in two thousand and six. So, so people can change as he had changed, and I think the challenge with Andrew Scheer is that I haven't seen the visceralness if that's a word, um, the visualness of the, of the anti Sheer uh, folks uh, this early on in this strong after election campaign that we're seeing now, which I think is troubling. Um, and I haven't seen anything from Andrew Scheer that is showing some level of I'm listening and that kind of stuff. Now I do think, and I've always said this, that we should give him some time to come back to the party to say, Hey, look, at I've listened. There's been John Baird's doing his post election uh, analysis um, and that kind of stuff. And there is a convention in April, 2000, 2020, where he can make his case to delegates and then have a chance to say yes or no. Um, and I think he's got he should have a chance to be able to come back to us and say, yeah, here's what I think the new direction should be. And more importantly, in the next day or two, we're going to see the House come back and he's going to be in his role as official opposition. And when he does his best is when he's official opposition. And that might change things as well.
3: Yeah, and I think to your point, John, I think he needs to stand up and demonstrate he wants the job. And and I think, you know, he started that process by saying, you know, the talking heads in Toronto. But, you know, I also think that if the Conservative Party is successful in ousting him, I think it's personally they're going to do themselves a disservice because there is no savior with styrofoam shoes on the horizon right and then there's that worry that oh you know there's this person that magical person is going to save us and that that, that just doesn't exist yeah. and the liberals felt that with Stefan Dion and then Michael Ignatieff and then they had all these saviors that were going to save them but they didn't save them
4: because did, it's they did not they yeah. did yeah. not
3: <laughs> and it's a hard job and it takes so, a while to find a savior it takes a while to find a savior but, but I
2: and I he's Michael Ignatieff <laughs>
3: And so, it, uh, you know, he's learned on the job, I think. I, I think he still hasn't found his footing. And, and that's the troubling aspect for Andrew Shearer and for conservatives that, want, that might want to support him. And so he's got a bit of time. I don't think he has much time, but he does need to make his case and make it strongly that he actually wants this job.
1: Okay, let me give the numbers out again. We're happy to hear from the audience, 416-360-0740, toll-free 866 740 I'm here with our strategy panel. It's Tuesday. We've been talking about federal politics. And now let's uh, pivot to provincial politics and that education strike that is almost sure to happen tomorrow, Charles.
4: Okay, as I said last week, I have no fewer than six in-laws that are high school teachers. So uh, I cannot say a bad word about teachers, especially with the holidays coming up. Um, It's obviously um, a much more testing situation than the educational workers job dispute that was uh, happening during the federal election. And, you know, this will be a real test of uh, Education Minister Stephen Lecce's ability to to navigate some very, very rocky shoals because one – um, the unions he's up against are experienced. They know how this game is played. They know the importance of parents in terms of overall public opinion. Um, and there, there's also a bit of a perception that the government cannot afford to be seen to have given in to to the unions and to the teachers. Um, but at the same time, a lot of Ontarians remember the so-called bad old days of Mike Harris when, you know, it was open warfare against unions and, and you know, the result was too often chaos.
1: And uh, Charles, uh, do you have plans for uh, what's going to happen with your kids tomorrow? Uh,
4: I am fortunate enough to have a, a, a wife who stays home. So oh. that's not as much of an issue for me as it will be for countless other parents. That my, might solve my problem. Might. <laughs>
1: <laughs> just send them over um,
4: at for eight hundred dollars a day. No problem. You Wonderful. Know, <laughs> no but uh, you know, I would I would think that job one is to avoid that that day long action because it's it's just it's just a nightmare for parents as so many as so many. Well,
1: and they said they said, hey, people, we gave you a little more notice than we were legally required
3: to do, Karen. Well, I think um, you know again speaking to the theme of whether this Doug Ford administration is kinder and gentler. Is to, to Charles's point, bumping up against, um, can, do you have the backbone to actually fight for what you say is important? And the unions are in a bit of a sticky situation too, because, um, the, uh, it's, it's not entirely evident to me they've made their case, because they've talked about class sizes, they've talked about online learning. The government has actually backed away from some of that and said, okay, well, we'll we won't, we'll, we'll keep class sizes more moderate than we initially said, we will back down on the online learning. And so, from from the public's perspective, I think the government is appearing to negotiate a little bit more than the union is appearing to negotiate, and so. Uh, but it's but the stakes are high for both the union and the government because both sides presumably want a deal, and the government has a lot at stake with its um, investment in this kinder, gentler administration. But yet they can't afford to go too far. So um, I would. Predict and I, I don't go to Vegas, um, but I would predict that w- there will be a settlement because I don't think either side wants to be seen to be the one that is not negotiating. Uh,
1: it's interesting to me because uh, the 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 unions keep saying it's not about our wages, and Stephen Lecce keeps saying it is about the wages. There there hasn't been any movement on the wages, and I'm I'm sort of thinking that that Lecce can't back down on this 1% max and yeah. they can't back down and take the 1%. No, and,
2: and, and they're not going to have a lot of sympathy amongst Ontarians who are also finding the crunch as well when it comes to their paychecks and their annual bonuses, which is basically the cost of living, if if that at all. So when it comes to wages, which is why I think the unions aren't talking about wages because they know it's a, lo- it's, a, it's, a it's a killer out there with respect to public opinion. Uh, they're talking about class size and they're talking about online uh, services and that kind of stuff, which as Karen said, rightly, the government has backed down on it and just to show sign of good faith. And I think this, and I mentioned this last time, but this becomes a war of public relations and, and, and the PR campaign, which is why you're seeing some of the union heads now actually doing videos and sending videos to teachers and to, to their supporters because they're realizing they're losing the PR battle because you've got a minister here, Stephen Lecce, who on every uh, occasion he can is out there in the public basically saying, um, I've asked for mediation. I've asked for a third party group to come in and actually mediate this system disagreement. Um, I've, I've given them everything they wanted. We've backed down on school sizes. We've backed down on online stuff. Uh, there are certain things that we just must we, we must as a government have to maintain for the sanctity of making sure that our school, our public education, continues to grow and evolve and do better. Um, so I, I think that it's going to become a PR campaign and, and I think this one day strike is going to hurt them because you're going to see a lot of Ontarian parents, uh, parents in, in Ontario who are going to be displaced and having to scramble to put their kids in for one day uh, knowing that it was a tease and it was an opportunity for the unions to say, well, this is this is what could happen to you if if the government doesn't back down. And I think it's a PR campaign that the unions are losing.
1: Do you agree with that, Charles?
2: Um, you know, it, it's probably
4: too early to tell. My sense is that the unions have taken a very strategic approach to this issue. They were well informed by the educational workers, and, um, efforts, um, you know, the, the notion of sending videos to, um, teachers and, and even to parents and better utilizing social media probably speaks to their communication savvy more than anything else and could indicate that, you know, they are bringing to bear a lot of tools that haven't been available. Uh, in in previous instances of work stoppages and strikes, and so I think uh, again, you know, prophecy is a lousy way to make a living. Let's just see how it plays out, and let's hope there's not a, a strike tomorrow.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, it it really does seem to be a PR war, and uh, it's anybody's guess.
2: Yeah, and it comes down to that. I think when it, when you see these issues that, that are affecting, well, government's all about communications. And, and the reason why I think a lot of people are panning, you know, Premier Ford's first year was because the communication wasn't mm-hmm. strong enough. And, and the reason why you're seeing a lot of folks who are saying that he's improved is because the communications is better. So I think from a government's perspective, communications and how they how their message gets out to, to the voters, quite frankly, is important. And it's not dissimilar for unions as well when it comes to this kind of stuff, especially when it comes to school unions. Um, um, where, you know, you've seen them in the past being very militant, very strong, very uh, outspoken uh, in their ways. And, 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 and it's easy for them to say it's about the government. It's about the fact that they'll never do anything that they want us you know, to be able to do. But you've got a government who's actually bending and making decisions and actually backtracking on some of their decisions in order to say, hey, we're trying to meet you halfway. Why aren't you meeting us halfway?
1: And I think that there's some kind of clause that if there's a much richer deal with the teachers, they have to go back. And
3: right. and give well, the QP workers more money. Well, and that's the thing. Like they've already negotiated one agreement with the educational assistants, and it's at one percent. So, it, it, the, like the the one percent. That's a non. Like, like of all the things that you can negotiate, there's very little room around that one. Yeah. And so it would be a shame if there is a walkout over something that everyone has actually pretty much accepted. I think the general public has accepted that one percent is probably reasonable. And um, and if that's where they go to war, I think the unions will lose. Okay. Let's move to the city. We, we've seen this shocking
1: increase in hit and runs. I mean, not to mention we've had, we've had in the last week, I believe three fatalities of Zoomers, older people who are most vulnerable when they're hit. And we've had these hit and runs. I mean, this shocking case of a woman hit. The, the driver leaves and then the next driver drives around her body. Oh my gosh. And then, uh, a a couple of days later, a child was hit. And thank goodness he wasn't killed, but he bleeding from the head and another hit and run. What is, what is going on with this?
2: Well, I'll defer to. To Karen as a former councillor, because I know that this issue has been, been discussed about discussed a number of times at council. Um, you know, every every councillor uh, wants in his or her ward to have, you know, safety and, and proper lighting and, and all that kind of stuff. But um, it, it speaks to a, a bigger challenge, and I think the city's even talked about, you know, cameras and whatnot to be able to do more. Yeah, John,
1: John Tory is promising 50 more as yes, of today. yeah,
2: and, and I think that's an opportunity for, for, I think, drivers who are thinking about if they hit somebody, um, they'll think twice about Running, You know, if, if you hit somebody, God forbid, but at least own up to it, st- stand and see if you can save the person, but at least call 911, do something that will reflect in some way you're trying to save that person's life by, 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 by hitting and running. You're absolutely doing nobody any good at all. And, and maybe these, these things might actually help. But I think Karen might be a, maybe a, more of an answer to that.
3: Well, yeah, I, I mean, I, again, I can't speak to um, why we have an increase in hit and runs at a time when the city has taken a position of project zero, which is to mm-hmm. have zero uh, fatalities and zero hit and runs or zero um, incidents between pedestrians and cars. Uh, you know, again, sim- symptoms uh, would you know include frustration, traffic congestion, um, driver uh, road rage. We do see that, and um, you know, and again, in the suburbs, in downtown Toronto, there's more congestion and it's harder to get around. In the suburbs, it's easier to get around, but that's where we see the speeding as well. And so, there's no. Unfortunately, I don't think cameras are the answer. I don't Mm -hmm. think there's one answer. I think it is uh, one of uh, what you had mentioned, a a, a culture of um, accountability and also one of uh, safety. And that I I, I think that we just don't have it yet as a city. When you get in your car to be thinking about pedestrians, cyclists, all the other users that share the road, I I don't think we're there.
1: So... uh you don't think that that the technology will help enforce and there's a we lear- the police uh, services board authorized a new enforcement unit it's it's eight people, the chief has said he doesn't think that the eight people will actually do the trick. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they're going to have to rely on technology for a whole lot of other things. Charles, do you think that th- therein lies the answer? The city just got the new legislation allowing the city to put those cameras in just took effect on the weekend. I yeah,
4: I, I like to think it will make a difference, given that my kids go to a public school just off of Avenue Road. Mm-hmm. And uh, Avenue Road is, is mm-hmm. like the 401 sometimes. Oh, yeah, times. It's just, it's yeah. absolutely frightening to live in North Toronto, especially earlier in the morning. Uh, you know, there is it, it's a amazing to me that so many normal people absolutely lose their minds when you put them behind the wheel of a car or in front of a computer's keyboard. And it really goes to what Karen was talking about, which is accountability. Suddenly you feel like you're anonymous and -hmm. and then you add that to just the sheer volume of cars that are out there and growing frustration and people trying to get from A to B in the shortest amount of time. And so you see all sorts of Terrible infractions, and it may be ultimately that that the the only recourse is much much stiffer penalties for for driving infractions, and then throw in the whole notion of bicycles and the number of fatalities we have and injuries we have there. I mean, it is a it's a complicated stew that's only going to get worse before it gets better.
1: I don't understand why people feel more anonymous when everybody has a camera, camera. everywhere. Well, and I
3: was going to say it's interesting because I didn't actually know that we could do this as citizens, but if you uh, witness is dangerous driving you can actually file a report with the police and the police will send a notice the driver or the owner of the vehicle saying that there has been a witness to this dangerous driving there's no infraction or points or uh fine but there is uh, an awareness that you know you were you were driving in a dangerous manner such that another driver or pedestrian or cyclist filed a complaint a complaint with the police about your driving and as that record builds then then it it does become a you know more um for that driver to heighten their awareness, like you don't own the road, mm-hmm. you share the road. Yeah, And for people like, you know, that feel powerless, when they see these dangerous things taking place, they're not powerless and they they, they can actually um, do something that will impact that.
1: And of course, if you're behind the wheel and not sort of all set, yeah. <laughs> set up, then you can't do it without becoming a distracted driver yourself. And then throw yeah.
4: alcohol into that mix because that's yeah. still... Yeah,
1: it's still, yeah. To,
4: uh, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean it was interesting. You know, we talked about the new rules in Quebec for drunk driving, and and uh, people calling in to a person thought we should institute them here.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's a distracted driving that I think is a problem yeah. no matter what, and it continues to be no matter how much you put the fines up and the point, you know, how many points you lose. I, st- I still see on the Gardener, you know, folks with their heads down, you know, playing with their uh, with their iPhones and stuff. It's it's phenomenal that it's still happening out there. Okay. Despite the, all the accents you're hearing. So, you know.
1: I think we have uh, run out of time for today. Thank you so much, Thank Charles you. Bird, Karen Stintz, and John Capobianco. And we'll see you back here next Tuesday.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one.